0: And we're, today we're going to zone in on verse 12. But for the sake of context, let me start with verse 9. The Lord's Prayer, part 5. <clears throat> After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Amen. That is the Word of God. This morning, as we continue our study of the world's most famous prayer, we now come upon verse 12. And I would like to say verse 12 is at the very crux of Christianity. Next Sunday, we're going to wrap up our series on the Lord's Prayer. But for today, our focus will be on this fifth petition. You know, on more than one occasion while driving about town, I've seen the bumper sticker, and you've probably seen it as well. It reads, Christians are not perfect. We're just forgiven. And at the very heart of Christianity is this notion that we are a forgiven people. Of all the blessings that could come from being a child of God, the greatest divine blessing is God's forgiveness. Why? Because the only thing that can send an individual to hell is unforgiven sin. That's so important, I'm going to say it one more time. The only thing that can send an individual to hell is unforgiven sin. If you take that into account, you will realize that No matter how many good works you do, it does not atone for sins committed. Unforgiven sin will land you in hell. And so, today's sermon is very much a gospel message. For the human soul, there is no petition greater than the one found in verse 12. I think we could all agree. The prayer asking Almighty God to forgive you of your sin is the greatest cry of the human heart. And no matter who you are in life and no matter what you've done in life, you are not ready to meet God if your sins are not forgiven. Because God is a God of justice and holiness. But how exactly are sins forgiven? And to what extent are sins forgiven? And what is our motivation to forgive others of the sins they commit against us? And lastly, if the Lord's Prayer is to be prayed daily, and it is, what does it mean when, if we are saved the moment we believe, what does it mean to ask verse 12? Why do we have to continually ask for our sins to be forgiven? These are all questions I will attempt to address through this morning's sermon, and quite frankly, there are no greater questions on the face of this planet. But in order to answer these questions, I realize I have to delve a little deeper. Here's what I mean. Two weeks ago, the Protestant Church globally celebrated the 501st anniversary anniversary of Reformation Sunday. It's so a Sunday that Luther famously nailed his 95 Theses onto that door. And, and Christians all over the world paused to celebrate the day, but sadly, many passed the day without celebration because, frankly, I believe, a lack of knowledge regarding the significance of the Reformation. And before we continue, I want to state something plainly first. The aim of today's message is, to, is not to bash Catholicism. That That is not the goal of today's message. And it's not my intent at all. In fact, most of what I'll say today, you've already learned in history class. It's all common knowledge. But rather, I'll bring up distinctions this morning because distinctions often give us greater appreciation for what our Protestant forebearers so valiantly stood for. And hopefully the distinctives will give you a greater appreciation of God's forgiveness and grace. If we leave here this morning with just a greater appreciation of God's grace, I think we'll leave with much. So listen very carefully as I explain. Why were so many Protestants willing to be persecuted and killed during the Catholic Inquisition? Why were so many Protestants willing to die for their beliefs? I guess the question I'm asking this morning is for all the apparent similarities between Protestants and Catholics, is there really a significant cause for separation and distinction? And the answer I would contend, not everyone would, but I would, And the answer is yes. Yes, there is a significant cause. We are divided because of the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins. We are separated because of purgatory. As the Protestant reformers and millions all over the world began to read the Bible due to Gutenberg's printing press, they soon began to realize the massive truth that purgatory is never taught in the Bible. For those of you wondering, the Catholic teaching of purgatory is obscurely found, not explicitly obscurely, it's found in 2 Maccabees, not in the Old and New Testaments, but in the Apocrypha, a book that the early church father Jerome clearly did not include in the Latin Vulgate because it was never considered canonical. There is massive difference between the two camps as to how they view the forgiveness of sins. This is important. And this is why our forebearers were willing to be burned at the stake. Protestants believe that when a person dies, he or she will go directly to one of two places, heaven or hell. If you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior by faith, then you'll go to heaven. If you don't, you'll go to hell. And there are no second chances after death. Scripture says, for it is appointed man once to die and then the judgment. This very straightforward binary nature of eternity is clearly taught in multiple times throughout the pages of the New Testament. For example, John 3:36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Now Catholics on the other hand believe in heaven, in hell, and a third place called purgatory. They teach that most of humanity, including faithful Catholics, will go first to that place, this place of punishing fire, refining fire, called purgatory. In fact, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which you could go on Google and read on your own from Vatican's archives, chapter 3, article 12, section 1054, quote, this is what it says, those who die in God's grace and friendship, now listen to that, those who die in God's grace and friendship, Imperfectly purified, that's all of us, although they are assured of their eternal salvation, undergo a purification after death in purgatory so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of God. End quote. In Catholicism, purification occurs in a place called purgatory after death. According to their teaching, hell is reserved for those who die with mortal sin. And for the vast majority of humanity who died not with mortal sin, but with lesser sins known as venial sins, you die within the grace of Jesus Christ, but you will still have to spend some time being punished in the fires of purgatory in order to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of God. Until you pay for those venial sins for which you did not pay penance for on earth, you cannot enter into heaven. You're not ready. This is a thoroughly tiring works-based religion. It leaves a person unsure of his or her eternal destiny. God, on the other hand, Scripture tells us, Hebrews 10, 17 through 19, listen to this. Scripture says that through the blood of Christ, we already have the holiness necessary to enter the joy of God. Here's what the text says. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more, and where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. So as Protestants, we reject the doctrine of purgatory And this is a big deal because we believe in the absolute sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We believe as followers of Christ that upon death we will immediately go into the joyous presence of God in heaven because our sins have been fully and completely paid for by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And we know these truths, not because of some church council, we know these truths because we have God's word as our witness. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through Christ. First John 1 John seven. The blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Notice that the word of God does not say some sin, it says all sin. So as Protestants, we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. As the old hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We do not have to spend time in a place called purgatory because of the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus, our Redeemer. Jesus paid it all. We fear not purgatory because purgatory does not exist. We are forgiven by faith, not by works. We are forgiven by his grace, not by our penance. And we are forgiven by the sufferings of Christ completely, not by our sufferings in the flames of purgatory. Catholicism, as you may know, also taught that a person's time in purgatory could be shortened by the purchase of indulgences or mass cards, by living loved ones. And Luther was absolutely repulsed by this doctrine. Thesis number 27 of his 95, Luther wrote, quote, They preach vanity who say that the soul flies out of purgatory as soon as the money thrown into the chest rattles. End quote. And most historians agree that the 95 theses which permanently changed Europe were mainly written as a protest against the selling of indulgences to free souls from purgatory. It was a big money-making agenda. The post that changed the world, the post that changed Europe, some even say the Reformation spawned secular democracy. The post that changed the world was a post focused on the forgiveness of sins. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, Indulgences rested on belief in purgatory, a place in the next life where one could continue to cancel the accumulated debt of one's sins. Another medieval conception not shared by Eastern Orthodoxy or Eastern Christian churches not recognizing the primacy of the Pope. Indulgences emerged in the 11th and 12th centuries when the idea of purgatory took widespread hold. And when popes became activist leaders of reforming the church, in their zeal, they promoted militant reclamation of once-Christian lands, then the Holy Land in the Crusades, offering full remission of sins, the first indulgences for those who participated fighting in the Crusades. Now, to this day, you guys know, the Crusades remain a tremendous black eye to Roman Catholicism. Not only was it a bad PR move, But it it was propelled by this false doctrine that if you fight in the Crusades, you would receive the first indulgence. Your sins would be forgiven. What it does show, however, is the great lengths people are willing to go to have their sins forgiven. Masses of people signed up to fight in order to have their sins forgiven. And so as we look at verse 12 of today's text, we have a profound gospel-centered appreciation. Well, what is the gospel? Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is the gospel? It's a very simple message. A child could believe and be saved. Number one, there is a holy God who loves you, but he is a God of justice. He must punish sin, as any good judge must. Second, we are all sinners. We are not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. It is by nature who we are. And so when we sin, we are simply doing what our nature calls us to do. And so for our sins, we deserve hell, and that is bad news. But the good news of the gospel is that God loved the world so much, he gave his son Jesus, who was fully God and fully man. He died on the cross for your sins and paid it all on the cross. When he said, it is finished, it was finished. No purgatory. In fact, he looked over to the thief on the cross and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. If there was one person who needed some refinement, it must have been that thief. He had no time for any penance. But he tells that thief, today you will be with me in paradise. There's no purgatory. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. So point number four, if you would simply, listen, friends, this is the beauty of the gospel. In all its simplicity, All you have to do is simply repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you have eternal life. That's it. You don't have to work for it. He's done it all. If you would simply believe in Jesus, today your eternity is secure. Today your sins are forgiven. Amen? So that's the gospel. And as we look at today's text, today's text teaches us three important points. First of all, we don't pray to have our sins forgiven because we've forgiven our neighbors. Don't get that mixed up. I'm going to say that one more time. We don't pray for our sins to be forgiven because we've forgiven our neighbors. Rather, we forgive others because we've first been forgiven by God. The grace and love of God so overwhelms us that it compels us to forgive in light of the gospel. And so in light of the gospel, no matter how great the wrong, and some of you are sitting here going, man, Pastor, if you only knew what he or she did to me, you wouldn't be saying that. Friend, I may not know what your friend has done to you, but the Bible is clear on that. Because God's grace has overwhelmed you, That compels you to love. Because you are forgiven, you are able to forgive others. It is not, I must first forgive, and then I will earn God's forgiveness. No, you have God's forgiveness. Therefore, you are at liberty to forgive others. Second, this prayer teaches us that we ought to pray daily for the forgiveness of sins. Why? Well, if we're born again, why do we need to daily pray for the forgiveness of sins? Well, friend, it's not because we've lost our salvation. No. You're born again. You're born again. You can't keep being born again, again, again. Once you've believed in Christ genuinely as your Lord and Savior, you are His. You have eternal life, John 3.16 says. You will never lose that. But why then pray for the forgiveness of sins on a daily basis because it restores our daily relationship with God. Remember, the Lord's Prayer begins with the words, Our Father, which art in heaven. And that's critical to remember because the moment you believed in the gospel, you were born into the family of God. God became your father. And that means regardless of what sin you commit, you will never lose the relationship that you have with your heavenly Father. Just as your relationship with your human father is eternal, he will always be your dad, your relationship with God will also remain. But also, just as your relationship with your heavenly, uh, your human father could become frayed, we pray the Lord's Prayer in order to restore that relationship in an ongoing manner with God. The Word of God says through our sins, we have the ability to grieve the Spirit of God. God loves you. He's your Father. He still longs to have a relationship with you, but that relationship could become frayed. It exists. You will never lose your salvation, but that relationship could become frayed by sin. And so we daily pray for a restoration of our relationship with God through the forgiveness of sin. And third, this part of the lord's Prayer, it teaches us that we are most like Christ when we forgive. You ever heard the old saying, "Forgiveness is divine it's true. We are most like God when we forgive others of their sins. Earlier, I opened up with the sermon. Um, with this quote saying that forgiveness is at the very crux of the gospel. And I believe that the reason for that is because nothing strips away glory from God than the teaching that his death was not sufficient for the payment of sin and the clearing of punishment for those redeemed by faith. In other words, purgatory. I think nothing detracts from the glory of the sacrifice of Redeemer Christ than this teaching that his sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient and therefore you must go to purgatory. Because forgiveness is at the very crux of the gospel. And so when we forgive unconditionally, we are most like Christ. I shared this illustration in another sermon, but it's worth saying one more time. I think it drives the point home because it puts flesh and bone on this abstract notion of forgiveness. On the night of june seventeenth, twenty fifteen, the a 22-year-old white supremacist by the name of Dylan Roof entered a black Charleston church for a Bible study. Twelve church members were already present and welcomed the newcomer in as they prepared to study the Word of God together. And Roof sat through the entire 45-minute session. As the group closed their eyes and stood for a final prayer to end their Bible study, that's when Roof opened fire and shot 77 shots. Each victim was hit at least five times. Three people survived, nine were killed. Roof told one of the survivors that he was going to intentionally spare her life so she could tell the world that he had killed the worshipers at church because he hated black people. Now for his crimes, the jury convicted Roof of all 33 federal charges he faced and he was given the death penalty. He was the first person executed for a federal hate crime. And throughout the trial, Roof was unrepentant. He never asked the judge for mercy. He told jurors that he, quote, felt like he had to do it, end quote. And on the day of formal sentencing, the judge gave 35 family members a chance to speak directly to Roof without prosecutors or the judge interrupting or asking questions. Ruth did not say anything throughout the entire proceeding. But what came out of the mouths of the victim's family members was truly remarkable. Although so many of them were still hurting and grieving, they nevertheless had the otherworldly fortitude and grace to look straight at the murderer and say, we forgive you. Wow. Sheila Capers, the sister-in-law of Cynthia Hurd, went as far as telling Ruth that she prayed for Ruth's soul to be saved. She didn't say, I wish you could rot in hell. No. She stood there and said, I am praying for your soul to be saved. And this is what she said, quote, If at any point before you are sentenced and you're in prison, you want me to come and pray for you and with you, I will do that. End quote. That is powerful. Sheila's decision to forgive Ruth was typical of the rest of her family and it literally shocked the nation. And I say this, her family forced Christians like myself to ask, am I strong enough? Am I gracious enough? Am I bold enough? Am I Christian enough? To forgive others the way that she did. And as we look at today's verse, it's plain as day, it's right there. And forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. We forgive others in an otherworldly fashion because God has forgiven us. And that is something to be treasured. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, so much for your word this morning. And Lord...